0: In Franklin D. Roosevelt's first inaugural address as President of the United States in 1933, he famously proclaimed, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Stated in the depths of the Great Depression, the United States would soon undergo a great transformation that increased the role of the federal government in the economic decisions of all Americans and eventually led to the foundation of the globalized American empire and the military industrial complex. During World War II. After the end of the Cold War, America re entered center stage yet again with the War on Terror, with the downing of the Pentagon and the Twin Towers in New York in 2001. And as the world enters yet another pivotal moment in 2020 with the coronavirus, Fear, once again, plays a vital role in cementing the psychology of the people for the desire for yet another expansion of central authority for the always elusive promise of more security. Well, I'm not a crook. I've everything I've got. The Military-Industrial Complex. <laughs>
1: We are here to destroy the control over the
0: industry
1: of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been The police have in of hello happy day welcome to the special 420 uh wave edition of myth of the 20th century i'm nick and i'm joined by hank adam hans what's going on boys oh, oh. I'm 420 doing. cast
2: it
0: oh. <laughs> what's up we got we got we got 20 bucks on bitcoin
2: <coughs> thank you <laughs> The day coughing <laughs> turns from ominous to celebratory.
3: <laughs> oh god! Oh god, guys, am I the fir- am I like uh, am I gonna be the first one to get it? One of us is gonna get it.
0: Well, I'm not gonna. Oh yeah, you to- totally. Disclose do you your haunts. location, yeah. but um, you think I think you have a decent chance. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's fifty fifty. You, you probably have it actually. Too. You
0: never know.
3: I'm 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 curious to do the antibody test, but then Zog will have my blood for sure. So I'll give de- it to de- him. Debating. I'm debating.
0: I'm already thinking about how do you fake having the vaccine. Yes. Do I have to fly to another country and get some like kind of biomarker thing that like injected into me and
2: then like you just chop off their chipped finger, you staple it on yours, and you're yeah. like, Yeah, you know, I've always had just had really long
0: digits (laughs) with different skin tones yeah
2: nobody's cares nobody cares nobody cares now and nobody's gonna care in 11 months and they're like oh yeah we we totally solved the problem bro yeah you just uh you know everybody go to the central location hey speaking of going to central locations and bad things happening what, what exactly did you mean by terror wave nick
1: well, that's going to be the first part of the show here. We're going, to, we're going to discuss the concept of terrorism as it came to be in the 20th century. So I'm going to start by a list that is by no means exhaustive, but it's basically a, um, a buffet, a uh, charcuterie platter. of terror. Yeah, a platter, a platter of terror. So here are some groups, historical, some current, that have at one point or the other been considered by someone or some entity to be a terrorist organization. So we have, in no particular order, the Irgun, the Symbionese Liberation Army, the Ku Klux Klan, the Irish Republican Army, the provisional Irish Republican Army, the real Irish Republican Army, the Justice Commandos for the Armenian Genocide, the Organization for the Oppressed on Earth, Shining Path, the US State Department, Stern Gang, the Red Brigades, Hezbollah, the Quebec uh, Liberation Front, the PLO, the PFLP, the Palestinian Revenge Organization, the Tamil Tigers, thus, Alfaro Lives, damn it, the Lantaro Youth Movement, Om Shinrikyo, Red Army Faction, Japanese Red Army, the mujahideen kok the entity known as Kosovo, uh, the Sons of Liberty, the PKK, the Popular Liberation Army, the Sam Hyde Organization, (laughs) New Order.
0: (laughs) He
2: can't keep getting away
0: with it. (laughs) First of October, Anti-Fascist
1: Resistance Group, the Jewish Defense League, the National (laughs) Military Organization, the Fifth Battalion of the Liberation Army, White People, Freedom <laughs> for the Basque Homeland, People's War Group, Maoist Communist Center of India, the National Socialist Underground, and Combat Eighteen. So
0: you forgot men. So An
1: ample of some. Not but, all so, men.
0: Oh, I said you forgot <laughs> men, as my feminist oh, buddies would would tell me.
1: <laughs> yeah people who ask their co-workers on dates. So, I, looking at the platter of terror, you can see that there are a lot of similarities and a lot of differences between the groups that I had listed. Now, you have, you're going to struggle to find coherent and satisfactory definitions of terrorism. Um, the academic literature is mostly worthless, and we can just kind of break it down as such, I mean, you, you find even contradictory definitions within a given state. You know, the, the State Department and the FBI might not always have the same exact definition. And then the, you know, international organizations uh, might not have the same definition as uh, constituent members, etc. So where do you begin in trying to define it? Well, you could start by trying to explain it by an act, you know, to, to do a terror. So what would that be? Is it to do a terror would be, I guess, violence against innocent people? Well, the problem with that is what about uh, hobbyist murderers? You know, people who kill for pleasure or out of, uh, you know, like, young guys who can't get laid and shoot up a coffee shop or something. Some kind of personal.
2: Or groups that only attack military targets, like, for the most part, Hezbollah. I, I thought it well, had well, a, well, has
0: to have a political objective. That's what on. Well, uh, yeah, separates well, the serial on killer so, rapist from the guy who wants to flip over the government kind of thing.
1: Well, so if you'll indulge, indulge me for a moment here. So if that doesn't work, let's try political violence against innocents. Well, as Hank pointed out, what about military targets? For example, the 1983 barracks bombing in Beirut or the 2000 attack on the USS Cole yeah. or the FLN in Algeria or the Zionists in Palestine or the PLO or the PFLP?
0: Uh, okay, I, I think How it's non-government organizations committing no, political, no. political violence.
1: You, again, humor me, Adam. I'm, 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 I'm okay. going to address that. So let's try political violence against innocents. Well, that's a bit broad, too, because, first of all, you have terrorist organizations that aren't necessarily violence against innocent people, such as Acts of Property Destruction. For example, the Weather Underground, or the Animal Liberation Front, or the Earth Liberation Front. Uh, these are their violence, so-called violence, is against property, so that doesn't quite work either. And then you have the emergence of goofy idea of cyber terror, which is mm. in that similar vein. Okay, let's try judging them by the goals of the act. Well, the problem with that is terrorism, broadly understood, could be put as a tactic to a number of different goals. For example, psychological warfare, traditional guerrilla war struggle, domestic repression, uh, shutting down political opponents such as uh, labor unions, propaganda of the deed, classic anarchist uh, terror strategy for political recruitment, which is something that you could argue was what happened with the Black September at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Um, so, there are many different possible goals that could be uh, that terrorism could be put forward. So, that, that's not exactly very useful either. How about political, how about approaching it from the terrorist, Is trying to define the terrorist who is what makes the terrorism? So, political violence by non state actors? Well, I mean, the, the most. Prolific terrorist acts in the 20th century were all done by states, you know, especially the United States, the fire bombings of Dresden, Tokyo, the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And this point, you go back to the origins of it. I mean, where, where does this come from? Well, it comes from the French Revolution, which was state terrorism. The, the, the guillotine is the instrument of uh, terrorism. And that's a state form of state execution. And furthermore, what they did after you know, slaughtering Frenchmen is they, they exported the revolution outside of the country in the form of total war and wars for freedom. So that also prevents, as you might see American academics try to do, is suggest that it has something to do with illiberalism, that, you know, liberal, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. And so does the terrorist himself need to be politically motivated? Well, what about crime syndicates being employed in the service of political objectives? Uh, this is where you have my favorite of the goofy terror words, narco-terrorism. Mm. That's, a, that's a good one. Uh, so they, they can be used by states for political violence, or they could be employed by other non-state actors for, the, for use in political violence. What about just mercenaries? And how about Arabs who they just want to go to the great snack bar in the sky? They they themselves that the one who explodes doesn't have any motivations other than maybe his family is being held hostage or he wants to join his uh, his family in the uh, in the eternal snack bar or what have you. Uh, what about when a terrorist robs a bank or something like this? Is is the bank robbery now an act of terrorism because it's done by the terrorist? So I don't really have a satisfactory definition that that was my spiel so you guys you know talk amongst yourselves no
0: i think i think you're you're raising good points about why it's a messy definition and why it's a suspect definition because it's typically coming from establishment groups that do if not as bad probably worse uh stuff that uh the terrorists or the people they accuse of being terrorists do but i I think what it comes down to like just in practice is is this group attached to some semblance of legitimacy to the Establishments, especially, but also the mainstream. And if they're not, if they're sort of viewed as fringe and they're doing the stuff that the mainstream military or police actors do, then the mainstream and police and establishment will brand their enemies terrorists. And this is the old argument they used to make back in the, uh, the aughts during the war on terror about well, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, and uh, 1776 was, you know, viewed as terrorism by the British Crown. So it really just comes to comes down to your perspective. I, I don't want to sound like some kind of uh, uh, relativist or something, but I think that's really what it is. It's like, okay, is this guy fringe or not? And if he's fringe, then the establishment will call him a
2: terrorist if they don't like him yeah, it's <clears throat> in my view, it, like it it comes down to the idea of political pressure via population pressure, which you know, in the, in the case of even uh, organizations that have historically focused on military targets, usually their uh, sort of tactical strategy to kind of uh, have a, a phrasal contradiction. Isn't that well? We're going to fight a gigantic war of attrition, and eventually they'll just run out of guys. It's that uh, there will be some sort of uh, pressure exerted by the fact that it appears to be an unwinnable war, uh, and some political solution or accommodation will be reached. But usually, I mean, when you talk about uh, kind of, you can you can do the min-maxing thing where you talk about. Uh, terrorism as the broadest possible definition that can uh, encompass anything that has ever been labeled a terrorism, where it's really just like, you know, political pressure that maybe has some population components, but maybe doesn't even, or you can do the, uh, the inverse and talk about, you know, actual kind of the, the core, uh, the core phenomenon of terrorism, things that basically everybody would agree, you know, like mass casualty attacks on civilians in order to achieve some political end. That's, that's pretty consensus, even if you could get surprisingly larger. And even if there are things that are labeled as terrorism that don't fit within that. And you can kind of talk about that phenomenon and why it isn't like, why and when it isn't, is, is and isn't effective uh in my mind that's a little bit more interesting because like we all know that kind of the rhetorical uh the rhetorical patterns deployed by various state organs are just completely uh, tactical and nonsensical and you can't really infer anything necessarily if all you know is like X has labeled Y a terrorist organization. Like that that literally tells you nothing about either side of that. It doesn't let you make any useful predictions. But if you know that there's this organization and they're, uh, they have these goals and these resources and they're engaged in mass population attacks to exert political pressure you can kind of make an inference about like, if that's going to work or not.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because I, I, I think that it is comically impossible to arrive at some kind of international standard of terrorism you know a terrorist is always going to be an enemy of the given state that's designating it as such and then you can look at the terrorist list and find that states are in uh, deep disagreement about certain organizations and sometimes states have a change of mind you know like the us state department recently had a change of mind regarding the mujahideen cult taking it off of their terrorist list so i think generally speaking i mean it's i was reading reading uh, uh, the French writer uh, Alain de Benoit, and he, he had an interesting observation that is basically that to- terrorism in a certain sense is an extension of total warfare and that it's also not much of a coincidence that people, I mean, people debate this a little bit as to win the first what you could properly call the first instance of total war, but it would not be a bad choice to look to the French revolution and the, the revolutionary regime because <clears throat> total war, of course, is defined by being warfare conducted in a way that knows no limits as to selection of well,
2: targets. I I, I I think that's kind of stupid to be honest. Like you could you could go far, far back and you can say that all tribal warfare is ipso facto total warfare. like you could. It, it, like that's that it, it fits every box. It just happens to be pre-modern. Like you, you kind of like place yourself inside of a historical epoch, and you say that like phenomena that kind of surfaced in a new way during that epoch are somehow uh, extremely novel, as opposed to just being a resurfacing of like completely ancient, even prehistorical patterns. Like it's a, it's a matter of scale once you start talking about modern total warfare and if anything you know you can look at uh, you can look at there being like a brief and extremely localized aberration where there was an absence of total warfare as opposed to that being just the default state of mankind
1: well it is interesting that with uh, especially in post 9/11 world and in post cold war world I, more more immediately the post-cold War world for our purposes at least. You have a situation of so-called you know global terrorism. and there's no way that this can go away, right This is totally open-ended and it can never you know it's become the world enemy of the states and when various states can find agreement, especially that you're dealing with some kind of enemy, I mean they can always there, there's no given end to this. I mean the Cold War had' an end because the USSR came to an end.
0: Well, it's a and lot that like was- climate change. I mean, it's omnipresent. It's, this, it's almost a silent killer like that, like the coronavirus. It really does make you wonder about the motivations behind it because it's so broad and encompassing. It just seems to be too convenient for the police state and the world government organizations to be just rubbing their hands together when something like this happens, if not actually initiating it.
2: This was a criticism that was leveled, you know, I I might be dating myself a little bit, but I remember all of this controversy around the idea of fundamentally like declaring war and a tactic. It's like we must fight a war on Blitzkrieg. It's like, but does Blitzkrieg work, though? Like, because if it doesn't, then it's not much of a problem. And if it does, it's not like. You know, you you avoid the use of a tactic by like fighting everybody who successfully uses the tactic. Like, it's it's just kind of a nonsensical uh, idea to be fighting a quote unquote war on terror. So it was obviously branding. It was just like you know fighting bad things, guys. Like why why don't you want to fight bad things?
1: Yeah, you gotta love when they declare wars on things, on abstractions. I am personally of the opinion, though, that 70s Cold War era terrorism was the golden age of terrorism. It had the most interesting ideologies, and now this has been eclipsed by just Muslim shit.
2: Well, just like various gay ops, I think, you know, 70s terrorism, man, it's like really... Takes me back. It's like the leather people. People were thin back then, so you know the leather jackets hung a little bit nicer. It was a prevalent millserp, so you know people. Uh, people were generally equipped with more interesting small arms, so when they were uh, they were photographed, it looked a little bit cooler. And was like, hey. You could apparently, like, uh, according to the uh, the Days of Rage uh, book, uh, it's a pretty good book about the uh, the Weather Underground um, and kind of the surrounding memeplex. Apparently, you could just kind of wander into hardware stores and just buy a few sticks of dynamite and, uh, you know, M1 carbine and just kind of wander out the door. It's a magical time.
1: Yeah, and there was money to be had everywhere, you know. You could get some money from the USSR, you could get some money from the United States. You know, it's the money the the bags were flowing, you know.
2: Oh, and everybody had cash. Like credit cards weren't a thing yet. So you could like actually rob a bank and it wasn't just, you know, people needing to like cash their cashier's checks or whatever. It was like no, this is this is like how the economy operates. So you'd wander out the door with like fat stacks, turn that into a sweet leather jackets, berets, communique paper, all that fun stuff.
1: The decline is real, man. I mean, terrorism has gotten pretty gay
2: know, anyway, Interestingly, like when you look at the 60s and 70s terror waves, you know, we, we have this notion of state sponsored terrorism, which is basically that, like that's a fun one. Yeah. I mean, that, that's like, well, it's it's effectively Saudi Arabia, but definitely not Saudi Arabia uh, is, I think, like the gist of it. I thought they accused Iran of it with Hezbollah yeah, I mean, at one point, like I think they've expanded it a little bit since then, but at one point, it was just uh, Iran, North Korea, and Cuba. Uh, I think eventually they added uh, one of the Sudans to that. I think at the time the Sudan was still just Sudan and done the uh, the north versus South. But it was like it was literally those three countries, which if you're going to pick, Sponsors of terror attacks, then like Cuba, hmm. It's like I feel like uh, there might be kind of an unrelated grudge going on there. And like North Korea, they, it's like, okay, they did, but it's kind of a long time ago. And, you know, the situation has evolved a little bit. Like, there's a few uh, kind of glaring emissions there, but I'm, I'm sure they'll rectify that whenever they get to a, a comprehensive analysis of the phenomenon
1: there. Well, so, what are your guys' favorite terrorist organizations?
2: I, I like the IRA for aesthetic purposes. It's like, there's some cute girls there. There's a lot of leather. There's, uh, there's some sweet murals going on. Uh, is, and they sort of interlink themselves like, with an English language uh, literature uh, tradition, which is nice because it makes it more accessible.
3: Is Hezbollah right. still considered a terrorist organization, or has Hezbollah kind of moved into that realm of actual
1: government at this point?
2: I mean, the U.S. still has um, them they're, they're on still their a list.
1: Terrorist designation, but that is a remarkable thing about how that works.
2: Is that. Uh, the europeans you know, interestingly don't
1: you can go as the mek did from being a terrorist organization to the legitimate government and exile in uh, kosovo or wherever the fuck their headquarters is
3: yeah i mean i guess you could you can always frame it in terms of Cold war politics and that there were all these government exiles and stay-behind groups and various groups that were involved, um, particularly in the Baltic states and in Poland that were kind of joined at the hip with uh, NATO and, uh, you know, um, some of the early uh, CIA operations, um, stay-behind operations, Gladio, and all its various offshoots that, uh, you know, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc definitely regarded those people as terrorist groups and the United States viewed them more as well. You know, they're they're fighting for their freedom. They're uh, they're, they're rebels. They're uh, they're whatever you want to call them, right? They're dissidents. And I think that in regards to Hezbollah, I think maybe the reason why the Europeans don't see them that way. A, the Europeans have more of a business interest in Lebanon in general than uh, the United States does. But generally, you know. Um, It really seems like you're regarded as a terrorist organization, even if you basically are part of a country's governing politic, if you run afoul of the, you know, some large powers' geopolitical aims. That seems to be the primary way in which terrorist groups are designated and stay designated. So. It's so. I mean, and in, you know, you can see that with the IRA. Like for a long time, there was a there was a fairly substantial amount of American, quote unquote, American support for the IRA, mostly in the form of like ethnic blocs.
2: Oh, uh, dude, you had like uh, American congressmen funneling yeah. that money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Peter at one King point, loves he got, the he IRA got so
3: bad in the '80s that um, you know Thatcher famously reached out to Reagan. And asked Reagan to put a clamp on deep levels of support that were flowing back into Ireland from uh, the United States East Coast, from, you know, Boston, from Philadelphia, from New York City, um, and to an extent from Canada as well, which is interesting. But there was, uh, you know, there were a substantial amount of people in the United States at the political level, the local level, community level that, even at the federal level, as Hank just said, that viewed the IRA not as a, t- a terrorist organization, but viewed them that the same way NATO would have viewed um, Gladio operatives in Italy or in Poland or in uh, in Latvia, uh, Lithuania. We did, we did a show a long time ago with Kathy Princess, I want to say two years ago at this point, maybe even longer, um, on Lithuania. And this is one of the subjects we touched on that you know, the, new, the U.S. government um, viewed these organizations, in, in Lithuania in particular, as um, basically not terrorist organizations, went out of their way to say that they're not, in fact, terrorist organizations. They are, in fact, what we would call freedom fighters or we would call political dissidents, um, You know, p- groups in exile. There was, there was a Belarusian government in exile for the entirety of the Cold War in London that was seeking to run operations in Minsk. Um, so it's always been fascinating that this subject of terror organization is used very liberally in, 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 you know, depending on political circumstances. Now, I think that there are there's room to say that there are legitimate terror networks, that that is all they seek to do. They don't really even seek to, ha- like, have a, a more permanent governing position They seem to really just want to inflict damage. So, you know, Al Shabaab in Africa and its various offshoots in the Horn of Africa and Kenya and so on, you know, their goal there is not necessarily government related. It it seems to be more about waging asymmetric warfare against ethnic and religious um, arch rivals. Or in the case of ISIS, um, whatever you want to say about ISIS, that it was a project of the CIA or, or whatever, you know, ISIS at its core was not really a terrorist organization that anyone was supporting on paper. Like no government was on, like on paper or publicly coming out and saying, "Yeah, those, those are those are the guys that we think are not terrorists; they're freedom fighters or whatever." Um, they, you know, it was explicit that these people and simply want to inflict terror. They simply want to um, wage a kind of bloody, insane war of mostly 20 year olds from the ghettos of Europe and the ghettos of the Middle East going over and killing people because they had nothing better to do. Um, but groups like the IRA, like Hezbollah, like many of the Gladio offshoots, um, I would even say like, um, many of the terrorists the the the, the quote-unquote terrorist networks that uh were, in, were very active in indonesia for a long time and and destroyed the nascent communist government in indonesia um you know they're only terrorists in the eyes of uh, certain parties for certain political reasons but they have larger goals they have they have a real network they have economic resources they are trying to exert real long-term political influence instead of just randomly killing and and maiming people and uh, terrorizing people
2: and you can look at instances like i i love looking at the french resistance because when you talk about the french resistance you had dozens of armed military and paramilitary factions that hated each other almost as much as if not more than the germans And it was extremely common for there to be attacks by one faction of the quote-unquote French resistance on civilian population centers that supported a different faction. Or, this was a favorite maneuver, you would stage an attack on the Germans in an area that supported your ideological uh, foes so that the germans would stage a reprisal attack on that civilian target on you know almost on your behalf uh sort of solving uh, two problems with uh with a minimum amount of resources invested and yeah. you know of course like you know they're our greatest allies at the time like it uh, obviously the everybody knows that every government is complicit, especially in times of war, uh, on kind of attacks on, uh, you know, quote unquote, innocent, uh, targets. A lot of, uh, states go out of their way to kind of justify why, well, they really had it coming. They weren't so innocent after all. And you'll have kind of the, uh, Lovely, uh, the nation crowd talking about the sanctity of of civilian uh, life and the 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 benefits of neutrality. Except, of course, when it comes to their ideological factions, folks. Right.
3: Well, and, and you saw that a lot. Well, like, it's interesting. I'm too, I wanted in, to in,
2: in, add before you go okay, on, Hansa, yeah. just about the about
1: uh, the the French resistance. Is that after the end of the German occupation, uh, the more right-wing elements or rather the the more right-wing factions were largely liquidated by the state
2: yeah i mean at the very tail end of the french revolution there were so many weapons being dropped on uh kind of newly liberated or about to be liberated areas that uh like the u.s put a substantial number of operatives on the ground basically to try to clamp down on a emerging civil war in France and to try to like figure out exactly who had what guns and try to like stop us from just dropping a shitload of Garands on uh, a bunch of guys who are going to immediately use them to blow up somebody else and cause a bunch of problems. But, uh, deserves its own, uh, it's, its own show, but it's kind of a common pattern that when you choose to sponsor uh, organizations like, you know, our friends, the moderate rebels in Syria, in Iraq, uh, you don't always get to decide how that's going to play out. You're giving uh, money and resources and uh, fighting on the behalf of people that have their own agendas. And you specifically decided to sponsor them because they kind of are pieces of shit and you don't care if they live or die and so it's a very mercenary uh transaction the collateral consequences of which are obviously foreseeable and which frankly you just don't really care that much about
1: i've never gotten over the whole moderate rebel that's one of the funniest zogisms i've ever heard yeah like that was a john mccain favorite
3: the moderate rebels meme it the is a trope.
1: It, it's an commitment it's an old trope. To moderation. Right, right. It's an old trope. It's fanatical I mean, moderation.
3: Remember the, the moderate I want to say that the moderate rebel rhetoric really started in the eighties with the the creation of um, the the relationship. We actually just touched we kind of touched on this with our episode on um, uh, Brzezinski but the, the the creation of the moderate l- rebel rhetoric really started in Afghanistan I want to say I mean the, the notion of the United States supporting questionable people inside of governments for political ends goes further back than that but much further back than that and, and more and it's much more widespread than that but in order to sell the public on what was eventually going to become public what, you know what was going to come out which is this support for um uh, hardliners who are inflicting mass casualties on uh, other people was to say well that they're they're moderate right they they don't necessarily want to kill everybody they want to kill the people oppressing them and hurting them and the American public bought it the first time. Like most people were on board with the Afghanistan stuff infamously at like, um, the, uh, the, the Olympic winter Olympics in uh, the 1970s when, uh, when the U S beat the Soviet union at hockey, there were all these people at Lake Placid. Th- I think it wasn't, where was it? It was like Lake, like Lake Placid or something. They had, um, signs at at the game and it was like hey soviets get the puck out of afghanistan and stuff like that Uh, and it was very widespread this oh well you know there's these there's these heroic noble rebels trying to protect their old traditional afghan way of life and you know you fast forward 30 years and i guess the game plan was "Well, we'll we'll use that rhetoric again because most people when they think of factions in the middle east especially after 911 they think of you know terror groups everyone's a terrorist so in order to say ha ah, but they're not terrorists they're moderate rebels As, you, know, you have to like reinforce that they're moderate they're not they're not too crazy they're a little crazy but they're moderated like you know we're we're moderating them to make sure they don't get yes, what what is the players. mechanism
1: is it it's, it's yeah. a fanatical commitment it's you know right, they're right. deeply ideologically moderate
3: and and you know, and it's it's actually shocking that like it doesn't get used more often, or that it doesn't get like picked apart more often. I mean, if you want to look at a at a at a group that the United States has never bothered to say is a is a moderate rebel group, um, I would look at the Falun Gong in China, the Falun Gong, um, and on a, and the
0: Uyghurs as well, well. A lot of people think the Falun Gong are backed by the CIA. Well, they are.
3: But, yeah. I mean, the Falun Gong and the Uyghurs don't ever get the moderate rebel treatment. Now, maybe that's not to say that they won't in the future, especially given the current state of
2: relations with China. Uh-huh. They're they're not really to the rebel state yet. Yes. They're just kind of now—currently they're like poor, oppressed people of color, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, should rebellion become necessary, I'm sure that we'll— We'll find some moderate rebels, even if we have to make them out of whole cloth.
3: Well, it seems like there's this process by which you have to like set up the infrastructure to get to that point, and I think that the Uyghurs in particular are already there. They have like the Uyghur World Congress and some other front organizations, mostly in Europe. We
2: just call that World Star.
3: Yeah, but I mean, it, like they, they. Um, they're kind of. They've already set the stage, I think, for a a moderate rebel syntax for the Uyghurs. Who knows what that'll actually look like? Um, I, I think most Americans don't even know how to pronounce the word Uyghur. Um, but generally, nor it, should be, they. It, I think that it'll be interesting to see if the moderate rebel tack ever gets trotted out again, because it's the public has now seen what that really was in Syria. That the moderate rebels were, in fact, not moderate rebels at all. They were mostly just Al Qaeda, and then what was left of the moderate rebels was just subsumed into ISIS, and all those guys are now dead. So it doesn't matter
1: anymore. Um, well, with the Gladio Plan B operations with the Uyghurs, I mean, the the way that would work is that you know when the time is right and when you have sufficient arms caches deployed, you know, and tucked away and ready to go. Then, you know, the light of democracy will shine through and moderation will be found and they will be ready to join the world community.
3: What's interesting is the Soviets had a similar tactic, I guess you could call it, in that they they would look at a group, um, let's say, in Mozambique. In Mozambique, when the Africans were trying to throw out um, the Portuguese, or Angola, or even South Africa and, and uh, Rhodesia, and all these places, but Mozambique, let's say that. Let's just use that as an example. When the plan was to throw out the Portuguese, um, they would try and frame the argument to the world that these people simply want an end to oppression. They want an end to segregation. They want an end to, to racism. And, and they're very moderate. They want to join the world community. They, they want to trade. They want to be happy with their neighbors. But they're rebelling against their state because they're so oppressed and because that their lives are so terrible. And people kind of bought it. I mean Portuguese government of Mozambique is dead. It's gone. You know, no, no one. There was almost no one in the world who was going to come out and say, "Ah, but they're not. They're not moderate rebels. They're communists, or they're like insane black supremacists, and, and so on." No one's going to say that, um, except for the Portuguese and the Rhodesians were willing to say that. But the United States has that similar mentality where it's like no one can actually come out and say that it's bad to oppose Bashar al-Assad. No one can come out and say that because Bashar al Assad looks like a bad guy. You know, he's done some questionable things, and it's very easy for Barrel us to bombs. He's very, very easy for the United States to come out and say, Well, they're moderate rebels. And can anyone, like, you know, can any, even major countries, can they come out publicly and try and pick that apart without being lambasted and. The global community for uh, being in opposition to freedom and democracy and all that shit. Well, they can't. Like it, it's it's sort of like a, a Kafka trap where the more you try and push back against it, the worse it is for you, and the worse it is for the government that's being rebelled against. And if you don't do anything about it, then then you know you remain silent and you become kind of a pushover. And the government that you would like to support, or at least think shouldn't be thrown out, um, immediately has no support and gets destroyed. You know, you saw this 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 play out very well in Libya. Um, you saw this play out in the 1970s and 80s in Indonesia. You saw this play out um, in Chile. You know, like it, uh, and you saw the play out from the other side in Cuba. Um, and the, the disaster of the Bay of Pigs only added to the Kafka trap that the United States found itself in by the Soviet Union in Cuba. So large powers typically, you, you know, in the in the post World War II era, use this rhetoric very effectively to um, have kind of a pincer, a rhetorical pincer movement around their adversaries in the stage of. Uh, plotting a coup effectively against a government that they want out of power. That seems to be what terrorist designations are mostly about. Um, that seems to be what moderate rebel de- delegate uh, designations are mostly about. There are like real terror networks. Um, there are real insane groups of people that want to do insane harm for no real logical reason. But I would say if you look at the majority of terrorist group designations, uh, the majority of them, as quantified by the United States, uh, are, in fact, probably not truly terrorist groups. Um, and you can make the same argument from another angle, like the fact that um, after those shootings in Houston, I believe it was Houston, where that black supremacist guy killed five cops and whatever, um, oh, that was Dallas. That was Dallas. Okay, that was Dallas. And it was Texas. I couldn't remember if it was Dallas or Houston. Um, but uh, the the government of Russia designated Black Lives Matter, BLM, as a terrorist organization. Came out publicly, so they're a terrorist organization.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, they also it, have an arrest warrant that, for George Soros. And
2: in the United it, States. It's unclear if some of these things literally exist. Right. That's also like true. The, like you can look at the uh there's there's actually uh only really a few uh you can look at the state.gov/foreign-terrorist-organizations slash and it's uh it's slim pickings there like is al shamrickio even around anymore i'm i'm pretty sure they're no. gone doesn't doesn't seem like it. like the not, Palestine and liberation Front, <laughs> i don't think they exist i think they're all dead or retired like
1: the uh, the plf not the popular front for the liberation of palestine
2: uh the uh the palestinian yeah the palestine liberation front
1: Uh, yeah the plf yeah
2: yeah i mean like uh, some of these things you don't have any sort of uh it can be like a labeling of like a loose conglomeration of factions of a, a sort of uh, uh, like a barely defined noun that's only fit for putting in press releases. Like, I don't I don't think that there is a thing if you call like ISIS dash West Africa like hello i am looking for isis dash west africa it's like ah uh, yes like my friend mohammed no my other friend mohammed no no no, no tall mohammed like he's very wise and that that's about like as much of a leadership organization as really exists but it's helpful to actually construct a idea of a A organization of like a noun, an entity that you can actually put on the paperwork in order to uh, say that, like, "Ah, well, because there's this noun, then like we're entitled to do this thing because we have certain powers and privileges if we are dealing with a a terror organization uh, as opposed to just like some regular guys we don't like.
1: That's the origin of al-Qaeda. I mean, or at least the speculated origin is that it was just a designation given, yeah.
3: Al-Qaeda was created by the u s. Attorney's office. It like literally in pre-trial planning. Like, how do we go to a jury <laughs> and to a judge and relay this and this like smattering of information? Oh, well, we can say that there is a wider network at play here. And all of these seemingly uncoordinated and unconnected events or loosely circumstantially connected people and events are actually a part of a wider movement. And, and okay, now there's a movement. we got to add a name
2: to the movement, okay? Which you can see how this fits both sides because right. then it becomes possible for – for instance, uh, subsidiary like quote unquote subsidiaries like these aren't necessarily McDonald's franchises, uh, like you know foreign affiliates. Like one of the things that uh, became kind of a meme was pledging your allegiance uh, to like Al Qaeda, uh, you know partially for the purposes of, you know, maybe the guy you were talking to uh, didn't necessarily have a, a direct line uh, to uh, Osama so much as uh, to uh, to uh, Washington, D.C., but, you know, that itself doesn't disprove the meme. Like, people are willing to, like, construct the organization as a thing at that point and be like, yes, well, we're Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and so, like, you know... Naturally, we still revere our, uh, our great patron, uh, Osama, even if we don't take uh, operational guidance from him. But certainly, like, this set of principles seems uh, more true than false. So, like, it's, it's self-propagating. One thing
1: about al-Qaeda that's interesting when you compare it to the, the golden age of 70s terror wave is that a lot of these... Terror, these organizations—they're very aspirational. You know, you know what I mean? I mean the the Palestinian Revenge Organization. It's pretty clear
0: what
1: it's yeah, so pretty clear what that's about. Caliphate. Yeah, or the uh, in the case of <laughs> I think one of the funniest, uh, Al Faro lives. Damn it! I mean that I, that I has don't... to
2: take the cake. I don't even know. I like. I, I. am a connoisseur of as many obscure uh, randos as you can throw, but I've never heard of them. Like, who? Who is that?
1: Alfaro lives. Damn it! it was a, they were an Ecuadorian organization, and uh, Alfaro was some kind of leader of theirs, or you know, some figure in Ecuadorian politics in the seventies. I don't actually know too much beyond its name, but that how, is.
0: How did they get the gratuitous damn it at the end? That just seems almost like a joke. Like the, the, the Pastafarians who are claiming that they believe in I a giant spaghetti better. monster in the sky. A, El
2: Faro uh, yeah. vive, Carajo. Yeah, exactly. Because, oh.
1: <laughs>
0: okay.
2: Also known as the Fuerzas Armadas Populares, Eloy Alfaro, El the Eloy Alfaro El Popular Armed Forces.
1: Right. Or. <laughs> Or you had, like, I mean, one of my favorites is the Justice Commandos for the Armenian Genocide.
2: That's I, a I, pretty cool name,
1: you gotta oh, say. that's great. Like, I mean, usually the revanchist organizations have the best names. They're they're usually my favorites. Um, then you have the aspirational ones that try to, you know, project that they are a legitimate military force, uh, you know, to the point of gratuity. Like, the 5th Battalion of the Liberation
2: Army. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, you see... <laughs> First would be a little bit too uh you know aspirational and like seventeenth might be kind of in the lily there, so in yeah, a compromise. like it's it's the kind of they they strive for the the kind of bloodless uh understatement of like ah uh, yes, we are the investigations bureau. It's like, well, you know, the <laughs> it's like, well, every everywhere it seems to have an, an army or a, a red army. So we're we're the uh, the Japanese, the red army. And it's like, well, you're you're like twelve guys, bro. Like you're not you're not even really a platoon.
1: Well, and then you get like you get ones that it's very clear what they're about. You know, the Jewish Defense League, right? I mean, you get the idea. They make it clear. And then you get something it's just like, like Combat 18, that probably came about because somebody at MI5 thought it sounded cool, right? I mean, National yeah. Socialist Underground, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory.
2: Yeah, usually it's like, when it's a, a, what did they mean by this type of name, it tends to be the more, uh, the more ominous or like AstroTurfed ones know that that might be kind of a fake meme. my favorite my favorite name actually for a uh organization um because of its kind of delightful untranslatability is a boko haram like the haram uh is pretty straightforward it's like forbidden not kosher not kashrut etc but the boko is kind of like a a an african i don't know what language that is some african language it's like a colloquialism that means like like Western Western stuff, like Western trickery, Western knowledge, and it's like kind of loosely translate to like Western education is bullshit. I feel so like, okay. Like, kind of see what you're getting at there. It sounds better if
3: you actually don't know what it means. <laughs> it's like. Boko Haram. No, har- like Haram so is wide.
0: like forbidden, and so Boko I guess is West. Ah, uh, yeah,
3: but I mean, if you like, from the average Westerner, like Boko Haram, it's like, oh, oh, God, honey, have you heard of that 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 Boko Haram group? Oh,
2: so it's terrible. I just, I just read just read the Atlantic about don't. them. Yeah, like you well, you you translate, uh, you know, the uh, the army of Islam, like the anything. Well, that's not even really true. Like, how do you how do you decide that you're going to like not translate Al Qaeda, but you are going to translate the Palestinian Liberation Front? Like, it's Boko a great it's Haram a great question. Versus like the El Faro, like whatever, damn it, guys.
1: Or the or the um, the uh, the Kahanist organization, you know, KAK, however they say it, which is uh, in English would just mean like thus which is pretty ominous, but that doesn't get translated. Yeah. It's, that's always interesting. I mean, the, uh, I mean, ISIS or, you know, they do that or ISIL or whatever. Uh, that's very aspirational. It's got, you know, state in the name and it allows for the Western powers to treat it like it's a state, which is convenient. You know, it gives them a chance to go to war against the state for the first time in 60 years, even though not really, I think that the my general take is that um, the C, the State Department, the CIA, MI six, and just Arabs in general have become very uncreative. You know, they're they're very lazy these days when it comes to having
2: spicy terror names. I think that it's a little bit symptomatic of you know. A lot of the time when you're looking for, uh, you know, whether it's, quote unquote, a a terror organization or just some uh, some regular regular old rebels, not even the moderate ones,
1: or just, you know, the squad hanging out on the weekend, kicking back some beers,
2: kicking back some beers, robbing banks, maybe getting some big ideas, stars in their eyes. But. There's when whenever you decide that you're gonna knock over someplace, there's kind of two phases that happen. The first phase, you're just kind of like looking for anybody plausible and just showering them with Gibbs because it's like, well, you know, we've already made the decision that we're gonna try to knock over like Syria, for instance. So like if you can uh, raise the the flag of rebellion, whichever flag that will be, like, yeah here's some money here's some guns have fun and then there's usually a stage two where this is kind of what uh Soleimani was reputed to be very good at where you're not just like dumping money and weapons into the area because a lot of the time you run into the dynamic of like group a hates faction b faction b isn't really even a faction it's just two guys and they've been making off with your money and uh shooting up hashish or whatever on the weekends so you start to kind of try to cultivate uh, who your actual strong horses, is, and you start trying to get them to actually do stuff. And not just do stuff, but do the stuff that you wanted them to do well. So this is like, if you want more money and more guns, you got to do A, B, and C. And we'll give you a lot of advice about how to do that, but you have to prove that you're able to do a b and c and this is how you end up with uh groups that kind of do things that are um uh, would be kind of bizarre ideologically for them to do because it's like well you know if you're the if you're trying to set up a quote-unquote islamic state for instance what is bashar al-assad to you like you have a very much weaker state in the opposite direction that you could be attacking instead. And really, it's like, you know, you can be everywhere nowhere. That's the advantage of being in a strategically offensive war. You don't have to attack hard points. You can attack soft points. So why are you getting into pitched battles with the remaining Syrian army? It's like, well, your sponsors are telling you If you want to keep the Gibbs train flowing, you have to actually take this town, even if it's going to cost you casualties, casualties that you might not actually be able to replace, even if it's a hardened position and you might have to send in your best troops in order to take it. And trying to convince them to do that and try to convince different factions to cooperate and how to split up the loot and everything else that's a lot of kind of what the uh, the state-sponsored uh, insurgency, state-sponsored conflict uh, model consists of. And when you extrapolate that to kind of the uh, the terror uh, context, you can see how uh, this kind of plays out. there's some There's some actually very funny uh, supposedly intercepted uh, memos going back and forth between uh, different factions of al-qaeda where they're essentially uh they're essentially like trying to file expense reports it's like abdullah like but why why have you spent all this all this money it's like well you understand and In Germany, cars are very expensive, so I thought it was better to purchase. So I'd like to get reimbursed, please, because I'm like it's it's very kind of a bureaucrat gang form of humor, um, but it is a form of humor that exists. And it's surprising the extent to which kind of especially the Soviets are really rigorous about uh, enforcing. You know, you gotta you gotta have your metrics and your deliverables before you get your uh, your KPIs satisfied and your your per works out great and gets more symptoms. Well, yeah,
1: the, w- one of the funniest moments
2: in the in the Jim Jones saga was when the USSR
1: declined to fund him, despite uh, him. The, they had like bag of like two million dollars in cash that you know, when the um, mass murder suicide took place, they had uh, one of the one the Jonestown people was assigned to go like donate this to the Soviet embassy
0: <laughs>
1: I mean yeah it's like hey bro we gave you all that money to we wanted you to go you know murder some women and children and uh you know yeah, get to yeah, work guy, Even for buddy. the KGB
0: I don't think that's a good look I mean and what was Jones's uh, pitch I mean like what what, what we're we gonna kill ourselves like what what gain for the USSR is that
1: well, this was before, like, this. I mean, the, the idea was, like, he was going to set up a, ah. a new communist order. Ah,
2: okay. Yeah, he was very influential in, like, San Francisco regional politics before he moved to uh, South oh, America. Oh, yeah,
1: big time, big time, man. Yeah, <clears throat>
2: he was he was a uh, political operative. But the, uh,
1: um, uh, what, what was I, have you guys ever seen the movie uh, The Tailor of Panama? That's a good one. I, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it, uh, highly recommend it. I'm about to spoil it, so maybe you know, skip ahead a minute or so if you don't want to have it spoiled. But it's based off of La Courre novel, and the premise is that Pierce Brosnan plays an MI6 agent who finds this Jew living in Panama, who is a you know consummate liar. And he gets him to make up this terror group, like he's feeding information about people he knows, and he gets him to make up this terror group, which he then sells to MI6 to get the bag and then take, you know, the the funding to to crack down on the terror group. And then he gets the gets the bag and flees the country. (laughs) Uh, Seems like good business model, actually.
2: (laughs) Many such cases. I mean, that was a common thing in Afghanistan, right? You you've got tribal enemies, and so you sell them out, and uh, not even really selling them out, just like call it an airstrike on people that you wanted fucked anyway, and like get uh, get the bag uh, as a nice side benefit, and uh, you know maybe pick up since you're now a guy that can be trusted, maybe you catch the uh, the security or the concrete contract uh, for the province that you operate in. Like there's a lot of yeah, uh, then, Afghani millionaires now. And speaking of the
1: racket, on the other side of that, you have these organizations that are, you know, these think tank type organization, NGO organizations, Terror Watch type things, where the, you know, you just uh, you make up, a, you use a random, random uh, letter generator or whatever, and you make up some acronym, and there you go, new terrorist organization. And,
2: We've uh, been picking up a lot of chatter. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's my favorite one too. I think I already had a favorite, but we're picking up a lot of chatter. Things are really—it's like you—you kind of Mad Lib from that point forward. But the important thing is, you know, the spike in chatter could really be, uh, really be a signal that uh, you know the Arabs are mad online, and uh, we need more funding.
1: Yeah, I think that the 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 libertarian, you know. Uh, alex jones type conspiracy scene and and just i guess the american right a little bit more aware american right in general they're, they're right to be worried about the expansion of terrorist designations to uh domestic citizens i mean it it, it was a non non-insignificant event when they uh when they drones alawaki that that is of some some interest i think despite well, and, i don't think anyone Richard, giving a Richard. shit yeah oh yeah
2: Big time. Yeah, I mean, this was Uh, like real, uh, you know, Reason Magazine uh, circa 2004 or whatever hours, but uh, you had uh, like because of the ineffectual and Patsy like nature of these people and like the concurrent desire for the expansion of the I wouldn't even say military-industrial complex, like this this particular neocon cabal faction, to fluff up their importance and to fluff up the importance of the organizations that they found themselves in charge of. They were very desperate to kind of uh, to blow up, so to speak, the threats that they faced when they're like literally just who uh, random fuck ups entrapped people whatever and then you know uh actually i don't think it was reed because they actually caught who, who's the guy that they picked up like off the streets of chicago and renditioned the uh the american oh geez student. blank yeah oh, whatever the point is uh it was very important to try to like even when wildly unnecessary To try to be like, well, you know, in these extraordinary times, you just don't know. And so therefore, like, you must give me essentially unlimited powers as long as I say that it's very, very important and I just can't tell you. Which is like, you know, you can have genuine states of exception when you are genuinely fighting a war and it's like hey, we're in Belgium in 1944 and we caught this guy sneaking around out of uniform. It's like, okay, well, maybe just shoot the guy because you, you are literally being shot at right now and don't necessarily have time for this Yahoo. But it's like, you know, the, the construction of a a war as a omnipresent state that a state can be in that justifies whatever you happen to want to do, as long as you contextualize it according to that framework. Like it's sounding like real Chomsky hours here, but it it does actually describe a phenomenon where now we see that nobody's really come up with a pithy uh, description that contextualizes the Corona in that, uh, that way. But that's clearly what they're angling for that this, does constitute some sort of a state of exception in which like, as long as we contextualize whatever ludicrous action we're taking through that lens, as long as you're willing to make that rhetorical point, you have the concrete power to do whatever you particularly decide you want to do.
1: I saw actually just a moment ago, I saw that, um, that woman from that, the the view, uh, whatever, Joy, they're, I think, they yeah, are. Uh, they are. Yeah, her. Well, she was saying that the uh, the the people uh, out in the streets or whatever doing the the uh, coke protests are uh, terrorists. <laughs> Jeez.
2: I would rather be shoe bombed out of the sky than listen to a full episode of The View. Oh, I, I, didn't. Made,
1: I, I, I wasn't listening piece. to the view. to be clear I just saw an RT post
0: <laughs> Yeah well if it makes you feel any better uh, Kid Rock called her the B word
2: mm. I feel like the uh, the V Rock uh, reaction I've been seeing that get a lot of play I believe it's a pro wrestling callback I'm Trying to find the extended cut But uh, the, the punchline is Shut up B-word. We're not misogynist here. We respect we respect women.
1: Do you remember the um? What was that? The like Rage Against the Machine was into promoting them. They were like a <laughs>
2: that,
1: that ethnic group in uh, <laughs> Southern Mexico, I think.
2: And it had like oh yeah, Subcomandante Marcos. Su-
1: Subcomandante Marcos.
2: Yeah, Two, yeah just, like, just, it got so gay, out.
1: man? I mean, back in the seventies, it was it was. You know, like the, everyone the, was in a band, everyone, the you know, all the bros, the you know, it's you like, buy yeah. your and girlfriend it, it, and stuff. Everyone had their own terror group and it was dope, you know, and, and then you would have the band would break had, up and uh, it would splinter into a bunch of different little terror groups. Some of them were even in bands like the uh, the Japanese Red Army uh, guy who hijacked a plane was he was a bassist in this pretty sweet band called Les Rosellis de Nundes. It was like this heavily distorted psych
2: rock band.
1: But then you get Subcomandante Marcos, and I think it's all downhill
2: from there. Well, his dad, I guess, owned like a chain of furniture stores, which, you know, doesn't disqualify anyone from anything. But... No, you
1: can still be a terrorist if, you're, if your dad owned a furniture oh, store. Oh, yeah, right and
2: it's, it's actually overwhelmingly, like all the uh, quote-unquote Al-Qaeda guys were uh, engineers for... Various reasons. I mean, like, reason number one is that basically there's two uh, majors that you can have if you go to any sort of broader Arab world university. Like, you can you can major in Islam or you can be an engineer. Uh, that's what you get. And so, like, you know, a lot of the guys that decide off the bat that they're going to study Islam... Uh, It's like, well, you you came from a a good family and, like, that's going to make dad happy and you're really not that into it, actually. And the guys that ended up studying engineering and then going on uh, exchange trips to the U.S. were like, wow, actually, uh, the other thing is sounding pretty good right about now. (laughs) That's the explanation that I've heard. Uh, There's also, like, clearly an IQ selection effect where... You don't actually tend to have dumb terrorists that last for any length of time, uh, assuming that anyone is actually trying to uh, roll them up. Uh, there's there's definite selection effects that go on there. So let's, maybe some people are a little bit better at the GMAT, as a safer bet.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I think that so one thing we've we've nailed down more or less is I think the most useful way to talk about it is in terms of a tactic because that can be applied to all different kinds of organizations. That's still not totally satisfactory, but for the sake of the conversation, uh, what do you think are the worst terrorism ideas?
2: I mean, like, that begs or raises the question of what are you actually trying to accomplish? I I think terrorism is a uh, like it's a very ancient uh tradition that the notion of like we're going to massacre you horribly uh like you know rape your women send your children into slavery uh burn down your city unless you surrender all the way back that is to, a like, terror it, tactic
3: it goes all the way back to the peloponnesian war at least i remember uh, you know victor davis hansen has written multiple books on the peloponnesian war and, and one of the books he wrote, I want to say in the 90s, early 2000s, he he made a point that there was uh, basically oh, well over a decade in, in, in the midst of the war where things got really, really bad and both sides were resorting to what we would today construe as terrorist attacks or at the very least like um, something close to Viking raids where they just hit some small town that would might be associated with Athens, might not really be, who knows, completely pulverize it, kill everyone, and, you know, take all the women away and kill the kids, too, and that was it. And, like, some yeah, small that fishing was, town. That was, like,
2: 50 years of the Hundred Years' War was yeah. just that in France. Yeah. yeah. And
3: you can honestly say the same thing about most of European history. I mean, that this, or history of any region, this was a thing. This is a thing that just happens. There's all kinds of asymmetric, unplanned, guerrilla-style terrorist attacks or raids that take place, and it it's sort of time immemorial. I think that the it, way that
2: it does it does have a it. Oh, sorry, I didn't, your well, mic the, cut the way out. that
3: the way that we view it now, I I would say is is more telling than the fact that there are terrorist attacks we view them now as this unholy mess of a situation that is unprecedented and has there has to be a global response to this. Whereas, you know, for a great deal of human history, asymmetric raids by less civilized or outside groups was the norm of life. Everyone was just kind of used to it. It was like one of the various risk factors. Like, okay, there could be – a play there could be a famine there could be another small ice age again who knows or like some idiot from the steppe might come down and kill our village or some you know if you're like um if you're the incan empire some mesoamerican tribe that you know like still eats snakes and worships fire could show up one day and massacre a whole village now it's just the way the world <laughs> it would. everyone just, it was like one of the things you just woke up with, okay, that could happen today, and we just got to try and prepare for it, and, uh, you know, maybe it doesn't happen today. Maybe it doesn't happen for another year, but, you know, it'll happen at some point. It's inevitable.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Book of Job is basically that. It's like, yep, Emonites came over the hill, slaughtered yeah. everyone. I alone am escaped to tell thee. It's like, yeah, you know, that'll happen.
3: And it's interesting the, the extent to which terrorist attacks have been seen as civilizational problems. If you ever have read 1177 BC, 1177 BC which is a great book by Eric Klein, uh, even Tucker Carlson has endorsed it. Um, it, it goes into the Bronze Age collapse, as it were. And one of the things you learn about the Bronze Age collapse is that more than likely a severe contributing factor to the civilizational collapse of, 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 I believe, seven or eight different civilizations, Uh, with the exception of Egypt, really, was a widespread, prolonged series of Uh, unknown terrorist activities by an outside group. uh, Most likely, I think that they've narrowed them down as probably actually being from Sardinia or like uh, uh, pre-Latin Italy. Um, But basically these sea raiders went around the eastern Mediterranean for years. And over the course of a long period of time, Hundreds of raids and and rapings and pillagings and theft and ransom and extortions and so on um, destroyed multiple civilizations. You know, halted trade, halted communication, made life miserable for people. Um, And everyone moved on like, you know, Egypt moved on. Uh, you know, it, it, it happens. It, it used to just be a fact of life that an unknown outside group could decide one day to inflict prolonged terror on your civilization. Uh, and you might never really know the real cause behind it. It might Please. be economic. It might be territorial. It might just be religious. Who knows? No one no one's really clear, I would say, in the vast majority of these scenarios, or in the, the pre-modern world. Now, today we have to overanalyze everything to death and, and attribute multiple causal factors to every kind of attack, but I feel like that's sort of a waste of time. You know, you should do your best to defend against terrorist activities. You should definitely not try and support them because it'll bite you in the ass. One day there will be blowback, and you you just move on with your life. I, I really don't. I you know the 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 whole rhetoric surrounding terrorism is is becoming more and more bizarre, especially given the cruelty that uh, Western governments are inflicting on their own populations in the name of preventing terrorism. To me, that 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 is in of itself a, a true terror of an activity, is to spy on people relentlessly, to treat them like potential, um, I, I don't know, potential guerrillas, you know, like that every nation is a battlefield within and we have to monitor it that way. That in of itself is, is, is terrorism, I would say. Well,
1: I, I put terrorism in the category with like, it, it, it's the most extreme example that's in the category with words like refugee or concepts like war crimes, where they're, it's just so deliberately open-ended that it, it serves for the liberal state to be able to determine legitimacy. They, they reserve the right, right to, to determine legitimacy of, of any actor, any, uh, any partisan, any, any group, what have you.
2: Yeah. the exacerbation of terror. I mean, obviously, like yeah, for most of human history, you have raiders appear over the horizon. It's pretty clear they're not taking prisoners, but the the exacerbation of like de- like terror is a deliberate demotivational tactic that's overwhelmingly something that's deployed by a group that is kind of at least locally strong. Like, this is what the Mongols were famous for, uh, that, you know, they were very uh, uh, gratuitously creative uh, in not just, okay, we're going to burn your city down, kill the men, enslave the women, etc. But, hey, guys, you know what would be fun is if we put all the captive men uh, on this platform and we built another platform on top. And we had a party on top of that where they slowly crushed to death. Doesn't that sound fun? Here, send a couple of guys to the surrounding cities so that they can tell everybody what a fun time we had and maybe don't uh, be so slow to surrender next time. Like, hey, guys, look at this cool hill of skulls we built. Doesn't My, that I... kind of strike terror into your hearts? <laughs> maybe you want to surrender a little bit quicker. But that's not something that you have happen with, like, surprise, a pizzeria exploded. That's not actually a very effective demoralization tactic. Like, this has been exhaustively studied. Things like when air power was first a thing, people thought that, well, as soon as you have bombs just seemingly randomly exploding in population centers, of course, like the population is going to demand a political settlement and the war is going to be over. But what they found was the opposite. Like, random pinpoint attacks are totally survivable and they actually increase civilian morale like the the commitment of the population of london to the war effort increased during and after the blitz so like random suicide bombings don't appear to do jack shit if you have guerrillas take over your village and they start like actually torturing people in the town square because somebody informed in their coca plantation or whatever That can be a effective, at least in the short-term, tactic. But these seem to kind of describe two different uh, types of organizations.
3: Well, terrorism seems to be more successful. If you're using the Mongol analogy, um, more successful in general when you have an overwhelming chance of victory or you've already accomplished victory, and now you're trying to make your occupation efforts that much smoother. Um, You know, another famous Mongol analogy, I think it was from the sacking of Baghdad. Uh, There was uh, accounts of multiple Mongols who basically like were drunk by the time they got into the city because they had defeated um, uh, the the surrounding armies pretty effectively at that point. And (laughs) they actually got in there. And half the time they would, like, drop their weapon or, or, like, forget their weapon or, like, you know, something. And they would uh, tell groups of people, stay there. I got to go, like, get my sword or I'm going to come back. I'm going to kill you. But don't move. Stay there. And they'd leave and come back. And people would be just waiting there, waiting to die, like, terrified to move. And in, in the sheer small sliver of hope that they might actually be spared if they waited around and – um, you know, it, it's more useful if you've already won or, or you're definitely going to win or you're at least not going to experience any, any sort of um, fallout from engaging in the activities. Like if you read some of the accounts written by one of the pharaohs who was in charge of Egypt at the time and his correspondences with the Hittite empire – um, or the emperor of the of Hattusha, which, which was the capital city of the Hittite Empire at the time in, in the Bronze Age. Both of them had no fucking clue where these sea peoples were coming from. They're like, we have no idea who these people are. Never seen them before. No clue where their homeland is. No idea how to counterattack. No, you know, we don't have a navy to do anything with. Like we're helpless. We have, we have absolutely no ability to hit these people back for, you know, repeatedly attacking us. So maybe in that scenario, too, terrorism is more worthwhile activity, right, if you can actually ensure that you're not going to face fallout from it immediately. Now, in the modern world, that's not really possible anymore. It's very difficult to get away with it. Um, but in the pre-modern world, for sure, you could pull off stunts like that and probably get away with it and (laughs) no one would really know like what you who you were or what you were doing especially if it was the first few times you did it and you didn't do it again or you waited a while to do it again um terrorism in terms of like okay we're gonna run a plane into a building in 2001 america um and you know like what was the result of that? Oh yeah, like over ninety percent of the United States was in favor of literally glassing the Middle
2: East. <laughs> I mean, for all the good it did. Like, if you buy into the the kind of maybe constructed ex post analysis, the intention was to provoke into a uh, into a conflict that would then somehow question mark question mark establish the caliphate. Well,
0: right. I, I also I think the most legitimate case for if you believe. You know, Al Qaeda is real. Hashtag is this form of asymmetric warfare has the potential to severely cripple the financial uh, power of the Great Satan, the United States, and it has contributed greatly to the amount of indebtedness uh, and the drag of the nation's attention towards non-productive means. And so, I do think that there has been a, a great economic impact. From it, uh, for a relatively small cost. Again, if you believe this is what actually happened, uh, and I do think it's a, it's a valid strategy. If you are facing a immensely powerful uh, enemy, is that the cost of defense is always more expensive than the cost of offense, and so if it's one of the reasons why empires fall apart is because their their borders continue to expand uh, at a sort of a a linear rate and then the cost of maintaining them go up even higher as, as that grows. And many people point to why the Roman empire fell apart was just, they they couldn't send the troops around fast enough and the taxes they were getting was not sufficient to support the, 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 uh, the cost of maintaining the system. So again, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I think that's, that's a valid strategy.
3: well, I think that the more that we see terrorism actually kind of stop existing. I mean, when was the last major terrorist attack in the West?
0: Like a few
3: years ago? I mean the last one Yeah, happened, the
0: whole like well, the Las Vegas thing was weird, but like the whole um mm. like all automatic... I, I mean, <laughs> No, I was <laughs> glowing the dark yeah. hell, But it was Yeah uh...
1: I think it was I think it was posted on the internet sometime this
0: afternoon, probably.
3: I mean, the last terrorist attack that I can really think of. There were
0: like that, a lot of truck it, attacks in Europe. Yeah,
3: that that was a thing, but that sort of tapered it, off. It went the most away. <laughs> there were all those there were all those lorry attacks, like the the. Well, the that's that's the, a British English word word of truck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, well, that's what they would always call them in the European news reports: lorry attack. And I was like, oh, just say truck. Like, just just say truck. But, anyways. Um, that was a thing for like three years and then it stopped being a thing. And then there was nothing except for there's like, you know, the violence, first of all, is probably not being covered much anymore, but it's, it's more sporadic. It's like stabbings and knife knife attacks, acid, acid attacks, right? Like Aisha, this like, this will take place in Europe. Uh, Aisha said, she doesn't want to marry me. She's, banging the like the six foot tall British guy. I'm gonna run up and throw acid in her face. Like that that became a, a, a trend for a while. And now it's just stabbings, random stabbings, and you know, like I'm sure there's all kinds of low level violence that isn't really reported on. But
2: well, low level distributed violence isn't this like it it again gets back to the kind of uh the question of what exactly is terrorism. But uh, the idea that you can have uh, a group kind of imposing low-level distributed violence upon you. I, I'm not sure, like, I mean, clearly that has kind of a political end in that it, like, the goal is to kind of uh, ensure the, the supremacy of that group. Like, you know, like samurai entitled to uh, behead uh, peasants that look at them funny or you know, the uh, the apocryphal, uh, you know, whistling at a uh, white woman, quote unquote, uh, you know, regardless of whether or not that happened, like the conceptualization of it in the popular consciousness of like you've offended the honor of the group. And so uh, any member of the group is entitled to exact vengeance upon you. That's right. That's like. That's a dynamic that's obviously different than blowing up a pizzeria, which is different than, uh, you know, we're going to torture uh, the informants in the town square. But all of these things, I think, are related to the the notion of uh, low level violence as a political tactic.
3: Well, there was that there was that trend for a while to to try and rhetorically regard the NRA as a terrorist organization because yeah. of school, because of school shootings. Uh. And, you know, in hindsight, school shootings as is isolated like incidents, um, regardless of what you think is really going on with school shootings. I'm I'm with you guys. But hear me out. In isolation, school shootings and these high school shoot ups are like true kind of benign terrorist activities. They serve no purpose. They are about inflicting terror, about striking fear. There's no wider goal at play. Um, But you don't really see that anymore in regards to, like, the Muslim world. I don't really know what's going on. I don't know if it's because Islam has really tapered off or if... The, the oil sheiks who were funding this stuff decided that there was too much tail risk in continuing to fund it, and they just stopped. I don't really know why it's happened or how it's happened, but it definitely feels like the closest thing we have to consistent terrorist attacks anymore are, like, high school shootouts.
2: Well, I mean, people t- are noting even back in, like, 2003 that— given how farcically easy it would be to do like if not a exact repeat of 911 i mean similar to the attacks that actually did happen in europe subsequently where it's just like a couple of guys just seal the exits and shoot everybody in a theater like that's that's something that was ridiculously easy to accomplish in france sri lanka in kenya that pattern uh, doesn't exist in the U.S., which, like, the the plausible implication is that just somebody doesn't want that to occur in the
3: U.S. Right, and, th- and that also implies that someone did want it to occur for some time, which is, in and of itself, inflicting terror. Like, th- th- there definitely was, I feel, a concerted effort on the part of someone, some people, who shall remain nameless because I don't know their names, to inspire and engineer terrorist act. True, ter- truly, in the dictionary sense of the word, terrorist activities against domestic populations. I don't know why the the, the well. I don't know what the game plan was. Clearly, this was either allowed to happen in certain circumstances or proliferated in certain circumstances. I don't know. But evidently, the fact that it came to a complete stop and there wasn't anything big means that maybe the powers that be, the people that engineered this, got the reactions they wanted from what they did and allowed to happen. I feel like that's generally the, the, the course with terrorism. If you look at the Cold War era, that was how it played out as well. You know, like the Soviet Union would let Castro do certain things. Wouldn't let him go too far, but they would let him get away with certain things. And they'd say, okay, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. Don't go too far. Like, we don't need you getting bombed by the United States. You know, like, go right up to the limit do this, do that, but don't, don't do too much. Or you could see that with like, um, the, you know, the United States and in Chile, like, you know, going to Pinochet, okay, you can arrest and shoot these people, but don't go too far. Like don't kill too many people. Don't kill foreign citizens. Although he ended up doing that. Don't, don't go too far off the mark because, we're not going to get the reaction we want. We might get a reaction we don't anticipate or that we can't control. So that now that we we know over the years of this, as this stuff has emerged in history books, we know that a lot of actions taken by smaller actors on behalf of larger actors were very calculated actions. And when they pulled off the accelerator, that was also a calculated action. Or when they put their foot back down on the accelerator, that was a calculated action. So that kind of leads me to believe that much of the kind of new era of post-9-11 terrorism is also calculated. It's calculated by people with money or with resources or attention to actually make sure that a reaction is achieved that benefits their interests or achieves some higher goal. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I I would look at it generally. I mean terrorism – is a form of political theater, right? Yes. And and just like, I mean, as we've been discussing, I mean it's just just like every television and film, it used to be a little bit better in the 70s. It's all gone downhill, but the, you know, we're in between seasons right now. It can never go away because terrorism as a political concept or as a political tool is really just a designation of saying it's violence that the state does not uh, endorse or find to be legitimate right and, yeah and i uh i it's not going to go away you know i mean you're, you're gonna always have this because it's an aspect of the state at this point in the in the modern world and it used to be you know i mean technology has changed this i remember the anarchist i forget his name but uh he, he went to Spain to try to assassinate King Umberto. And, you know, that's a, he had to go by boat and everything. He was a, living in the United States. So he had to like get on a boat to go to Spain to try to assassinate the king. And these days, yeah, you, I mean, you can hop on a plane and go back to the mother country, what have you. And that's changed. But for the most part, yeah, I, I just, I think it's, It's shitty theater at this point. to say